Poland, uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausage. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're gonna try to show you. Hi, this is Margaret Bonikowska, your host, and you're listening to episode 85 of Polcast, recorded and produced by me in Toronto. It's Christmas 2021, the second Christmas in the pandemic. The world has changed beyond recognition. I remember my brief visit to Hong Kong in 2011 on my way to Manila when I saw some people wearing masks and I was surprised. I would have never expected that masking would become a norm everywhere. Polcast is not a news podcast. If you're interested in what's written about Poland in English, online articles published in many countries by many media outlets, we post them daily on our Polcast Facebook. Here today in this episode, the last one before Christmas and the last one in 2021, I just want you to relax, listen to some beautiful Polish Christmas music and to an interview with someone special. But let's start with the music by my friend, a musician, radio broadcaster in Edmonton and a passionate human rights activist whom I met and became friends with through our common Canadian effort and struggle to aid Poland's democracy, which has been now in dire straits for quite a while. We both co-founded Democracy Poland Action Committee of Canada, DPAC. Joanna Czapka-Sangster is an outstanding and award-winning violinist with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, but also she has her own obsessions, Octet, which played at Carnegie Hall. Last year, I recorded two episodes on Christmas music uh, with Joanna. Please go back to episodes 78 and 79 and listen to her stories about Christmas, beautiful stories about Christmas music, illustrated with the songs and carols. Today, please enjoy her own rendition of a beautiful Polish carol, one of the most lyrical ones, Maluszki. And think about white Christmas, family, friends, peace and quiet, the way we all remember from our childhood. The other carols and Christmas songs in this episode come from a CD without which I cannot imagine my Christmas. Recorded many, many years ago, it's unique in its arrangements of the well-known Christmas music by my talented friend Magda Papiesz, 
a Toronto cabaret artist, singer and teacher. This beautiful Christmas album called Święta Kolendą Przyproszone was all done by her and Ola Turkiewicz, an artist who, after many years in Canada, returned to Poland, where she now lives and performs. By the way, she is the author of all our podcast jingles. Thank you, Ola. The kids' voices you hear are the voices of the students of Mavo Academy of Arts and Music in Toronto, who, taught by Magda Papiesz and other cabaret and stage artists, are now adults. And thanks to that education at that school, they have become mature performing artists. Enjoy this beautiful music. And now is the time for this episode's interview. Eva Stachniak, Eva with a W, is a Polish-Canadian writer who made it big in Canada, not only. Born in Wrocław, she came to Canada on an academic scholarship just before martial law, and she stayed. She has become a best-selling author, having written six novels, five published to rave reviews, and the sixth one, to be published in February 2022 in Canada and the US. Her meticulously researched and beautifully written historical fiction has earned her several honors, such as the Globe and Mail Best Book of the Year and a spot on the prestigious Washington Post's most notable fiction list. Her books have been translated to many languages. Emma, I think you're one of the very First people I met when I came to Canada, it's actually amazing because this was at Christmas time. Christmas is coming. 
but we're not going to talk about this, but we're going to talk about your life journey. We met in 1990, and I remember you and me walking along that Credit River in Mississauga mm -hmm. on that walk when you were telling me about your dream to become, well, to write a lot more. You've already written. Mm -hmm. But your first story, Marble Heroes, was published in 1994, which is four, four years later. Since then, you've been an amazing explosion of everything, publishing and books and everything. Can you just go back those 30 years and tell me, did you ever plan anything like this? Did you ever see then that it could develop into such an amazing writing career? Um, I always wanted to be a writer. That is, since I was born, since I discovered books, since I realized that books were not just books, but there were people who wrote them, you know, so I must have been four or five. And I always thought that the best life and the best uh, thing for me to do would be to be able to write books. But it took a long time before I actually became, an, I became a writer and thought about myself as a writer. I was always close to books and to reading. So uh, through the English department, you know, in, in, in Poland, it was, it was literature. I was always, you know, I was teaching literature. I was reading, I was writing about books. But somehow in Poland, um, there was some barrier and I don't really know why I did not try to write myself. I mean, I wrote essays, I wrote articles, but I never wrote, not even a short story. I kept a diary, yes, but who doesn't? And uh, and, and that's a, quite a mystery to me why I did not do it. Um, when I found myself in Canada, I was 29. I was doing, you know, I was at McGill doing PhD in English, of course, in the English department. So again, close to books. And the writer that I um, started working on in Poland, Stefan Temerson, was a bilingual writer who wrote in Polish and in English in London. And 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 I was I was jealous. <laughs> I sort of I remember reading his stories, but I was jealous. Uh, and that's the first time when I thought, oh my God, I really don't want to write about him. I want to be like him. I want to write books. But uh, you know, I had I had a PhD to to finish. I cannot really abandon things in the, in, in the middle. And it maybe also I needed seam and I needed that sense of wanting to, uh, knowing what I wanted to do. Also, the English department in Poland and the English department in Canada at that time were two different microcosms. I actually met writers and poets who were teaching in the English department. And I realized that that was not only a department for scholars, but it was also a department for creative writers. Louis Dudek, a really very famous Canadian poet, was one of the first people I met at McGill. And so I, I sort of, these were signs that you can be an academic and write. And, and in fact, that writing can be an academic work. We're not mutually exclusive. And then, um, so all sorts of little hints. And, and, and finally, I did my PhD and I thought, I don't really want to be an academic <laughs> anymore. You know, I did what I, what I wanted to do, I did. And there's really nothing else. I like teaching. I was teaching like you were teaching. Uh, I was teaching at Sheridan College for 20 years and taught literature as well and writing. But that very quickly, from the very first year of teaching, I knew I wouldn't supplement teaching with research anymore and academic writing. It was, it was just nothing. There was nothing else I wanted to do in academic writing. However, there was a lot I wanted to do in, in creative writing. And I started, I sort of wrote for myself and I started from short stories, um, short stories about people like me who arrived from Poland and found that their lives changed, that emigration and immigration really were uh, life-changing experiences. Marriages started and you know broke and, uh, because suddenly a partner who was okay in Poland uh, did not work in Canada. Um, children were born, children grew up and became different than they would have been in Poland. I was raising my own child at that time. I saw his transformations in Quebec first and in Ontario. So all these things, um, the clashing of values, the clashing of expectations. So it, it, I suddenly was, it was like Canada gave me topics and, and issues that I thought as I could tackle much better as a writer um, and than, than anybody else. I def definitely not as, a, as an academic. So, so it was a gift. Uh, being in Canada was a gift of a topic, of something significant, important. And, and, and I also felt that my perception of immigration was very different from other people's. And, and yet at the same time, I did 
have something in common with them. And maybe I could give a different slant, a different interpretation on what was happening to them. So I think I wrote about eight or 10 short stories. And most of them I published in small literary journals in Canada. It would be nice at some point to collect them all. They are available, they are published, but they are not sort of uh, put together into one volume. And they are just stories of people I met or, or my own experiences with immigration. And but the encouragement that I uh, that these stories were met with. I mean, I had uh, people in that, you know, the, the editors of literary journals writing back to me saying, oh, it's wonderful. We would be interested in, in new stories from you. So I felt that I'm actually not only doing something that I love, but also that the people respond to. What I decided at that point is that, you know, I was um, sort of a late bloomer, so to speak. I mean, I, I was already in my 40s when I decided to write. Uh, and I thought well, it would be nice to start, you know, maybe go to take a course, not so much in writing, but in, in this whole culture of writing. What does it mean to write? Who are the publishers? What does it mean to have an agent and everything else? And Humber College in Toronto is offering a summit program for writers. It's a one-week conference uh, during which we, you work with an established writer on your of pieces of writing, but you also get the insight into the industry. So I signed up for it and you applied to work with a writer and I got to write with Margaret Atwoods, you know, I was in her workshop. It was, uh, so that was fantastic. And she was extremely helpful and extremely encouraging. And she sort of um, inspired a lot of uh, confidence in us, but also I got my absolutely first uh, lesson in writing from her that I will never forget and that was, you know, we the whole seminar, uh, we were reading each other's writing and she would uh, ask us first to critique it or respond to it. And I responded as an academic would, you know, with symbols and metaphors and all that stuff that you do in, in a literature class and at McGill or at Roswell, University of Roswell. And we all said that. And, we, and then at the end, it was Atwood's turn. And she said, um, so this couple, they are making it out in the back of the car in the 70s. There is a bump in the upholstery there's not mention of the bump in the story and I said okay I can leave this class I've learned everything this is the difference between academic writing and creative writing and 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 actually yes I have to create a physical reality and if I can manage that everything else will become really right the first novel, which is actually, I love it, just wonderful. It's called Necessary Lies, and it was published in 2000. So you still continue that that theme, right, of of, of you, because it is autobiographical, yes. I would yes. imagine, in yes. many respects. Yes, a lot, in many respects. Of, but, but you would still talk about immigration. This is immigration, yes. emigration. Yes. This is actually the last one, right? All the other ones are historical fiction. We'll talk about it. Did you feel that you needed to do that to have some sort of like a closure of your own experience? What definitely happened is that I think what I did is I kind of ended with myself being the character of my fiction. <laughs> it is autobiographical and it comes from a lot of my experiences and observations of other people's experience around me. But uh, I think that that's the first thing many writers do. You know, writing is a way for me, it's the only way I understand reality, the best way of organizing my thoughts about any topic, any issue, issue of, of emigrating and immigrating. I, I needed to do it through writing because I could sort out all this storm of feelings that this transformation gave me. And so that the, the protagonist is some version of me. I let her have some of my experiences. So the Miguel and the leaving of Wrocław and the, and, and of course it's all fictionalized too, but it's, but the, not the feelings behind it and not the understanding, not the necessity to break with the past and to forge a new present. I started writing right after that seminar with Atwood. I started writing bits and pieces about Wrocław and Breslau. All the students in that group, for a while, we kept a writing group together. And I still keep uh, in touch with one uh, member of it, and we still share each other's writing. But at that point, I started showing these pieces of writing to my group. And they said, oh, this is a gold mine. This is fantastic. You know, this is great. You know, the story of this German city. We were born on the ruins of a German city. You know, how exciting and exotic it is. And 
and that sort of encouragement led me to start more and to write more and more about it. And then very quickly, I, I knew that I wasn't a short story. What changed? What made you go into that um, journey in which you seem to be now? Because, you know, although the last novel sure. that hasn't been yet published is fictional uh, yes. characters. So in that way, yes. it's different. But it's all historical yes. um, novels. Yeah. Why history? Well, first of all, uh, I believe that I can only write a contemporary novel because I am, you know, I live in this century. So I can write a contemporary novel about the 18th century. I am not really ever able or am not even interested in becoming an 18th century person. Um, I like distance. I think it's like a distance to immigration. I could write necessarily 10 years after things that were in it happened to me. So... Um, history offers me that distance. I can look at the 18th century. I am still writing a contemporary novel, but I'm writing about characters from that time. The 18th century is particularly interesting to me because I think, especially the women in the 18th century, are much closer to 21st century women than, let's say, 19th century women are. You know, if you think about Victorian women who are far more repressed, as we would say now, uh, than that. Uh, mothers were, you know, 18th century women were, were earthly, they were sexual, they were especially aristocratic and middle class women. One of the first feminist treatises by, uh, was written by an 18th century woman. So I'm always looking at, at, at a woman, an 18th century woman, who would, to me, um, be more than, you know, sort of uh, above time. You know, and, and I find, uh, or that I will see in her story something that the 18th century perhaps did not see, but we can, and we, we can find it interesting. So that's one motivation. But, but the original motivation was slightly different, and I'm not no longer doing it, but I did it for the first few novels, was that I felt that um, sort of the landscape of Eastern Europe, and especially the history of Eastern Europe, was missing in the Canadian discourse. So I wanted to bring it. This was, this, this was my heritage. These were the stories I could tell and nobody else perhaps could tell in the same way. I could tell a story about Catherine the Great that a Canadian writer cannot tell because I will see different things in it, you know, or Sophie Potowska or uh, The Chosen Maiden, you know, Bronya Nizhinska. How, how, who, can, who else can write about the Nizhinskis the same way as I can? because I'm Polish as well, and I know what it is to be an immigrant. Every single character of my historical novel, other than the last one, you know, the last one is really a departure, but, you know, you think about it, Sophie, Sophie Potowska, a Greek woman who lives in Poland, Catherine the Great, Russian princess who becomes Russian, Bronia Nizhinska and the Nizhinskis, Poles, who are, you know, who are, who are Pole, Poles in St. Petersburg. They are foreigners, and then they live all their lives in the West. And they, so I'm always looking at these characters with whom I have that insight, which means immigration and immigration. And that leads me to my question about your Polishness. Who are you now, having lived in Canada? Oh, this year it's going to be exactly, or it has years. been already 40 years, right? So that's exactly yeah. it. You came in 81. Who are you? Are you still a Pole? Because you write in English. I'm just wondering about your identity. I, in, I'm Canadian. I belong to Canada, but only because Canada allows me to be also Polish. You know, it's a, I would probably have a very different attitude to my Polishness in a country that would not allow that. You know, but I can say I'm a Polish-born Canadian writer, and it sounds perfectly normal. Uh, or I can say I'm Polish, uh, the same way my other Canadian friends say I'm Italian, and they may not even speak Italian, and maybe it's only the grand grandmother that's Italian, and that's fine. So in the Canadian way, I'm very Canadian, you know, in Canada. I, I, I find I'm not no different with, with having an, a, a different background. You know, when I go to Poland, um, I feel that in certain parts of the Polish life, I'm very Polish. In other words, I, I'm still very much attuned to the Polish writing, literature, culture, language, art. I'm still fully a fully a participant in it and it's alive to me and I, I I search for new books. It's really important. The Poland after the transformation, I don't really know it. I know it as a tourist. This is not the Poland I grew up in. I know it as someone who comes from time to time and perhaps knows a little bit more because I understand the language, but I don't really follow the politics that closely. 
um, I find it distracting and, and difficult to judge from outside. So I'd much rather concentrate on art because that gives me a, a pulse of the nation, but it's already transformed. It's detached. It's not everyday response to what's happening. So in that sense, I, I have this very vast part of Polishness in me, which I cultivate, and I'm very, uh, very happy to have it. You know, it, it it makes me a richer, better person. You know, and gives and enriches my understanding of Canada. You can always compare it, I, and and it also makes me like most of my Canadian friends are like that. They have that other the richness of the other culture behind them, and and I treasure that, and I think it's quite wonderful. So that's that's where I am. Would um, people who talk about you or people who read your books, would they know you are a Canadian writer of Polish descent? I don't think I'm of Polish descent. I always say I'm, I'm Polish born because, mm -hmm. you know, descent for me would be if I were born here of Polish parents, okay. right? That, that would be a slightly different relationship, right? Uh, or if I came here as a very small child, that would be more of a descent. But I think I'm, you know, I came here as fully formed Polish woman, right? So, so that I would have to, to sort of erase that and I don't want to. So I always say I'm Polish born. And uh, yes, that's how, how, how I'm presented. And it's, it's just part of, of me. I think it's interesting, especially with novels like The, the Chosen Maiden or Catherine the Great. I think that's uh, something that for the reader might be of interest because that means maybe I have a different take on the culture because I'm slightly closer to it uh with for example the latest novel it probably doesn't matter that much even though there is some Polish uh, connection to it first of all I insist in Polish to have my name spelled spelled with a w if the reader picks up my book in Polish it will be Eva Stachniak and then it will be translated by somebody else which is very many readers don't even notice and they are very surprised to find out that the book wasn't written in Polish originally. And I do authorize the translation too. So I work on it uh, as well. That's part of what I can do. Mm -hmm. But but I'm always always pleased and, and, and in a sense surprised when I go into a Polish bookstore. My books are always under Polish literature. They are never under foreign literatures. <laughs> Have you ever tried writing in Polish? Well, I have to, when I do publicity, I'm asked for essays. Creative essays. writing, like your no, own, no. no. No, I haven't. I maybe missed that period in my development. I might try, who knows. My Polish is getting rusty, not rusty in a sense that it's not, not correct, but it's sort of not the first language I have. For, 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 if I wanted to write in Polish, I would have to go back to Poland for at least two or three months and, and get the Polish from the second language into my forefront. So when I look at the dates of your uh, of the publication of your novels, it's uh, you know after two thousand, it's two thousand and five, twelve, fourteen, seventeen, now twenty two. What happens in the meantime? Is this how long it takes you to write a novel? Say I don't know, three years or so, or sometimes even yes. more. Yes, yeah. it, it does take, but but there's a dovetailing of of, of time. So for example. Uh, the book is the research first, so that takes about eight months before I even write. I mean, I do some pre-writing, but I, historical novel rem demands demand uh, a lot of research, and some books demanded more than others. For, for The Chosen Maiden, I spent time in the archives of the Library of Congress going through boxes of diaries of Bronia Nizhinska and, and all that uh, ballet russe stuff, you know, that took me a long time. I had to re-educate myself, you know, learn ballet, the language of ballet. I trained dancers, you know, so that was about eight months, all that research. Then there's the writing, the actual writing, the drafts and several drafts of it. And then there is once I have the the novel out, so the whole novel is there in bits and pieces that nobody by, but me sees, I have to put it back together and edit it. And then I work with the editor. So it's a long process. And then when that ends, it's usually all to three years, it will take. And so and then the book needs to go into the process of being published. And during that time, I have this book maybe every three months for a week. I have to do something about it. And then I send it back. So I use that time to do research on a new one or maybe pre-writing uh, or writing. A so I'm constantly working on a, on a novel. 
So so it's not like you're done and it's published and then you start a new one. You no, already no, start no, earlier. No, no. So it's like I a continuous process. The last year before publication, it's usually the time when I'm working already on it. How do you know what the next one is going to be? Like, is it while you write the previous one that you think, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do next? Or I'm just wondering what goes through your mind. It was different with every book. It, sometimes it's something that uh, triggers my interest. I think that in the Marble Heroes, in that story, there's Catherine the Great is there. You know, Poniatowski and, and Catherine the Great appear in, in one of the scenes. So I think that I'm sort of sometimes going back and thinking, oh, that was interesting. Would I like to develop that? You know, why did I think of Catherine the Great as this horrible woman? You know, and while here in Canada, I hear about her as this very interesting, almost early feminism. And where's the truth? I mean, obviously, the both portraits of her of interest and both carry with it some truths but where where would I be so so I think that that's something tr it triggers uh, triggers my interest um the Nizhinsky's it actually you know there was a scene in the Winter Palace where I described ballet ballet was extremely important as part of the Russian court and you know I was interested at the time of the revolution and sort of dissolution of that world and uh, um, of Catherine the Great's world, and I thought, but would I want? I mean, who, who who can I write about? You know, would I pick up one of the aristocrats? You know, sort of descendants of Catherine. I looked at it; that they were all very interesting people. You know, and then I realized, oh, how about the ballet? You know, because I remember. So I looked at it, and I said, oh my god! You know, here I could write about any of these characters. They was just fascinating, and of course, immediately you've got the Nizhinskys and the Polish story and. And I, I knew of them, but I never thought they were that interesting to me. So I, sort of re, I had to really re relearn uh, this whole thing. So each book uh, um, somehow triggers is triggered by something else. And the last one was actually, it was a very funny moment. Is I, I like my 18th century. I was reading something at, uh, of, and I saw, oh, there's a memoir of the uh, of the maid uh, to Madame de Pompadour. And I look at it and say, oh, that might be interesting just to have a look. And I go through it and I find a little um, aside about uh, the king getting a young woman pregnant. And then she says, oh, we always, you know, we always kept his identity secret. He presented himself as a Polish count. Uh, the cousin of the queen, of course, of course, the queen is Maria Leszczyńska. And I said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> if you present yourself as a Polish count, that might be actually very, very interesting. So I started digging into it and said, I got you, you know. <laughs> and that's how the, how, it, how the story of the Deer Park happened and, and other stories. And that led me into, um, into the novel, which, is, which really has that. That's the only Polish entry into it. Mm -hmm. but, but so every book is is slightly different in that period of time when you actually write do you work every day you get up yeah. sit down yeah. and yeah. write yes, I, well, sometimes it's right or sometimes you do research sometimes it, you need an experience so you know when I was writing The Chosen Maiden, it could have been that I'm going to the National Ballet because I got I got permission to attend rehearsals so I can go and watch dancers interact. So it could be that. It could be uh, traveling for research. It could be talking to people who are experts at something. You know, I've collected a lot of uh, wonderful friends who help me, you know, especially doctors. I have a few doctors who love when I say, I have a patient for you. And I, you know, so I would gather all the medical information that I have, let's say, of about Catherine the Great or about, you know, Bronna Nijinska's uh, mother or something. And I said, okay, so we have a woman of that age and I have all these symptoms. What do you see that I don't see? And I said, oh, diabetes <laughs> or, or <laughs> this or that. And then you look at the biography and said, no, none of the biographers actually did noted. that. And I ever noted it. And then I said, okay, well, so if Catherine the Great had diabetes um, that early, uh, what, what, how would, you know, of course, untreated, right? Unrecognized and untreated. What would be the symptoms? And I hear this and this and, ah. And suddenly the whole story changes because the doctor says, well, she would have lost any feeling in the extremities of her feet, so toes, fingers. And also they would have, you know, that that would have a great um, impact on her sexuality. She would have no, you know, so all these crazy talk about uh, her 
um, being so uh, sexually active until the last moment of her life. Unfortunately, it couldn't be true because for at least six or seven years before, she would she would lose any interest in sex. And then, you know, I, I remember picking up a diary, a memoirs of Adam Czartoryski, and then he is writing that there was a joke or sort of an anecdote going um, around the Winter Palace about Platon Zubov, that his, his very aptly named, his first name is very apt. <laughs> in other words, the whole, this is everybody at court knew that that was a platonic relationship wow. between them. But I said, so I know why. Like, so it's a bit like kind of a little detective. Oh, interview. yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yes, and I know that, and none of the biographers of Catherine the Great. <laughs> I only, I only know it because I, I, I just done consult with my doctor friends who diagnosed my patient. So, which part do you prefer? Doing that research, going through the archi- archives, or actually writing? I think I love both. From the academic side, I love doing research. You know, so that part I always loved. So, and that is. The time of discoveries, you know, you you see the other aspect of that character that you are, you know, and and, and and there are so many beautiful moments where you hold some artifact that belongs to the person that inspires you and you see it in different ways, you know, that physical contact. So, yes, I love that part. Um, I love writing, too. I'm, you know, I really enjoyed the pre-writing when everything is still fluid, when you can change things and when the characters solidify. And then I love the rewriting part where you polish and then you say, oh, I thought I was writing that, but there is a much more interesting thing buried under it you know so um I think that the least favorite is when the book is out and I have to I mean I love talking to readers that that is true and I but I don't like sort of here I am you know buy my books type of publicity which the publishers very often you know expect from the writer so I don't like that very much but I have to do it as part of my job and I do it translations your books hmm. have been translated into how many languages i think i lost track do you know i no i don't you don't it depends you know i know it's many 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 it's many yes do they change these books in the yes. translation well, yes and and it makes you wonder what what it is that the the <laughs> But, you know, I, I, the only translation that I actually can judge is the Polish one. And I have always been blessed uh, with uh, translators who were willing to work with me. And, you know, that yes, I know that this is part of my expectations. I still put it in a contract that I reserve the right to, re- to authorize the translation. You know, it's really tough for a translator to suddenly, you know, that the writer is not, not only not dead and far, you know, far away, but also knows the language and has her own ideas about it. But they have been all very gracious. And, and in fact, I think that, that we got into this last, uh, the last stage is always a back and forth. You know, I make suggestions and the translator would uh, say, yeah, I, I love this suggestion, but this one is maybe not so good. So that part I, uh, I, I feel com- confident in. The other translations, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and hoping that, that the book is uh, more or less like mine. But every translation gets something else from the text, right? You know, it's it's inev- inevitable that um, a translation will be a slightly different book. Have you had a chance to read any of the reviews of your translated novels? Of course, I know they're also in those languages, but it's probably easier because they're not that you can You can Google translate them. Exactly, oh. you can even Google <laughs> translate. So what do they say about Eva Stachniak in all these other countries? I, I seem to have a lot of writers who are enjoying the view of the, sort of a different kind of a because my my books are kind of literary fiction and historical fiction so that that level I'm not they are not genre historical fiction which is great but it's just not what I write I read you know so so you can read my book my novel any of my novel forgetting about you know taking the characters I mean forget that the 18th century or 21st or 20th century you just read a, a novel about relationships and about issues and uh so not any literary fiction so i get a lot of wonderful responses to that that uh that my novel open up the new um understanding of human relationships which i write a lot about mothers and daughters and and immigrants having to find their way so far as i said every single book was always about how do you find yourself in a different culture 
and what happens when you have to, and what do you lose and what do you gain? But I also love the fact that my readers seem to, and, and in every language, that they love that I give them an insight into a different epoch and time, you know, and I'm a pretty good researcher and I try to to be accurate. Um, so you get some knowledge, you get this, you know, you, you, I sort of take you with me to the, to the Winter Palace of Catherine the Great and you can go around and get some sense of Versailles in this, um, in the new novel, or you kind of get a sense of what it was to be a ballet dancer in, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, being part of Ballet Russe, which was an amazing theater company and dance company. So they like that, that, that you get a, a glimpse of the world that was a factual world. You have learned something and you have got an insight into a human story. So you always write about women, right? Are you a feminist? Um, I am a feminist, uh, depending on how you define the word. Uh, you know, I've always been a feminist. I was, uh, I always felt women have their own patch of human sensibility to, <laughs> to introduce to our common discourse. In other words, you have to stand your ground and speak how we experience the world. And it's as important and equal as that of men. And I, that's the way I was brought up. That's the way I've always been. And I love women who do the same. Um, so yes, definitely. Um, I'm not probably in terms of political sense, the word for the feminine, feminist uh, has very different meanings. I don't want to, to endorse every single one because it may not be me, but as long as we agree on the fact that the female perspective of, of life and existence and, lit and literary creativity is as important as that of a man. Yes, I'm definitely a feminist. And I'm interested in women just because their voices, especially historically, when you think, I think uh, 20th century and 21st century women are very vocal and they are doing very well in expressing that point of view. If you go to the 18th century, then you find that for, for, for centuries, the, these voices of women were not as prominent as they could have been. So you, you get a lot of male stories in history, but the female stories, not, not often. So I find it very rich, very fertile ground for my inspiration. Do you remember something that was the biggest wow for you in your work, in your research, something that really surprised you, amazed you, that you still remember as that moment, which was, oh my God. I think it's very many of such moments, but but um, I think that when I wrote The Chosen Maiden, I, I had many really touching and, and emotional moments in the archives because never before I was given boxes that contained personal items of a character I was writing about. I was opening a photo album with snapshots of children um, you know, Brana Nizhinska's children, her husband, her everyday life. She was a compulsive photographer. The archives had that. But I think that the most um, amazing parts were when I was looking at her uh, personal writing, when she was expressing that perhaps she would not express in public to anybody. She was in love with uh, Fyodor Shalyapin. And that was a very interesting love. It was love that was never physical. They were never lovers. Uh, she was idealizing him. And also he became in her imagination a genius or a genius or like an equivalent of a muse. He was, he was a conduit of her for her creativity. And, and I found that that was the wow moment in which I opened an, a letter and she was writing to him knowing she will never send it. It was not meant to be sent, in which she expresses, I'm working through a ballet sequence and I am lost. And, and she's asking him and talking to him about it. In, in her writing, which is so private and it's meant for her at this point. And then at some, and then she writes down, well, I had a dream and he came to me in the dream and he said, Bronya, you know how to do it. Dance for me. And I stood up and I danced what I needed to dance. You know, so that was the, the insight into the cre creativity of an artist. I thought it was, I was very privileged to be able to hold that letter and, 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 and the corresponding part of her diary in which she shares with me how her difficulty is solved through her love of a fellow artist 
and in her dream. And she said, I solved the problem of a choreographic problem of a dance. So these these moments like that uh, are really, really extremely important. With the last novel, um, a lot of this has to do with with midwives and babies and giving birth. And part of it is maybe because I became a grandmother in the process and, you know, babies suddenly again entered my life. And, and, and seeing, for example, um, how women dealt with pregnancies and childbirth um, in the 18th century, I never, you know, in earlier books, it somehow never became an issue. Here, it became an overwhelming issue. I was in Royal on the History of Medicine, and I stood in front of, an, of a mannequin used for training of 18th century midwives. You know, there was this fantastic midwife, Angelique de Cordier, who created a course for peasant women to teach them midwifery. And she did it with, with a machine, with her little, she called it the machine, but it was a, a model, a, a doll, a sort of, uh, that, um, that mimicked the birth process. And I sort of stood in front of it and I thought, how many women learned midwifery? You know, present girls who perhaps their lives would have been so limited. They were given that opportunity to learn to become midwives and that gave them the right and the ability to, to be vocal and to change their lives because being a midwife in the 18th century, century France was something. It really gave you power and, and direction in life. So these moments are, you know, sort of standing in front of an artifact um, that perhaps I would have overlooked otherwise. You know, how would I know about how, ways, the ways women found the ways into developing and, and making their mark on society? This is like your, your life has become a huge journey, right? Not only in time, but also into so many different places, yeah. so many yeah. different areas, fields. What are you most proud of? I mean, you have received awards. Your books have been translated. You're on these bestseller lists. This is amazing. Well, um, I think that one thing that that I still cannot get over is with The Chosen Maiden, that I, you know, I've never been athletic. I've never danced in my life. And yet I managed to get myself into a mind of a, of a ballet dancer and choreographer, and then write a novel and have dancers, such dancers as Veronica Tennant, come to me and say, you got us. You managed to get into who we are. And that I was proud of. I really was proud of. It's that sense of, oh my God, it, it worked. It worked. I was able to express something. I was able to become somebody that my my body and my experience would have barred me from, but that I overcome that. So I think, and th- that happens. That's that's the sweetest moment. It's the sense of that everything I did was worth it. You know, just to hear that prize and to 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 be able. And that actually wasn't. She was the not the only one. I I used to give readings from from the chosen maiden, and there would be always someone would come to say and say, "How did you know? You put in this novel thoughts." that dancers have, but we don't share them with anybody. I found in it the, the feelings that I had as a dancer. How did you do it? How did you know that? <laughs> you were a dancer. And I said, maybe in a previous life, because no, I have never danced. I have never been a dancer, but I, I managed to immerse myself in that world and then learn about it enough to write something that's meaningful to someone who is a dancer. So I wish you the same kind of reactions from midwives and all kinds of doctors and nurses that work in those (laughs) units in hospitals. I'm sure it will happen. But knowing that you start until, you know, long before the next book is published, what are you working on now, if you can tell us? Oh, yes, I can tell you that this time I'm again returning to to historical characters. you know, when you read about the 18th century, there's a character that appears in almost every story. That's a very colorful man called Count Cagliostro. And Count Cagliostro is a great, uh, depending, a charlatan perhaps, uh, but also a great alchemist and an um, uh, occultist mason and a man who has very, very, very many adventures, um, you know, travels all over Europe, um, ends up as the prisoner of an inquisition. 
um, I've never thought about him, but then uh, suddenly he became very, very interesting. I'm not really fully interested in him, but his wife, I always look at a woman. He he married uh, a young woman, Michelle Scortine, when they ma- married. And uh, I thought about uh, the perspective of a young woman, I mean, of, uh, 14 years old, who lives with the man character like that, you know, in his different transformations. And I have made a few discoveries about her um, living with uh, Cagliostro and, and finding her role in it. So, so I'm going to write uh, from her pers- perspective, but also from the perspective of other people around him, and and try to try to talk about lies and and fabricated stories and coming up with uh, occult and other issues uh, very different from anything else I I've, I've done before. So, Is there a title already? Or I was going to ask you: no. Do the titles come later, or do they? Or yes. do you start yeah. with the title? No, I have a working title. Like mm-hmm. uh, the, the the last book, the title is "The School of Mirrors," but that title came like five weeks before the final version mm-hmm. of the book. Um, I called it "Deer Park" for for yeah. a long time because that was the name of the house uh, that a lot of things were happening. So, you know, the title is part of a marketing, and the and and the Polish titles are usually different from English titles. German titles are different from. Canadian titles so I think that the, the most important part is to you know keep your own perspective and then you know, sort yeah. of the cover and the title is a different thing so no I don't have a title I think I'm very much into the psychology of being part of a cult of being a part around a person who is who is charismatic and can create a very strange world around you which is falsified but it's very powerful and how does it feel to be part of it? And how does it feel? And when? And how do you break out of it? Because she did break out of it, you know. So that's a historical fact, and I'm working with that. So okay. very different territory. That's part of your big adventure, right? You're going this. Yes, this every journey. book is a new. It's a new life. Every book it's is a new, new life. life. Well, yeah. I wish you a wonderful journey into that life. Thank you so much. Thank it you, be interesting for our uh, listeners. So all the best and Merry Christmas in Seattle. And Thank you Happy so new much. Year. Thank you. Happy New Year and Merry Christmas to you too. Bye-bye. To learn more about Eva Stachniak, please visit our podcast website, mypodcast.com.
It's time to say goodbye. Thank you to all our listeners, our kind donors, and those great people, all those great people that I have featured, interviewed on podcast this year. I love you all. I wish you all a Merry Christmas, Polish or whatever style, or Happy Holidays if you do not observe Christmas. I wish you a warm, restful Christmas full of beauty and good feelings. Christmas is not about getting exhausted while cleaning or cooking. It's not about rushing frantically through stores or spending hours on Amazon in search of gifts. We only have so many Christmases in our lives and they never return while they're over. So spend this time with those you love. Don't forget to contact people who are maybe waiting to hear from you. Remember about others around who are less fortunate than you are. Make time for memories, look at old photos, maybe read some old letters, light a candle for those who departed. I wish you also a good new year. My three H's, as I always say, health, happiness and hope, and also peace, peace in the world. Wherever we are, it's all that matters. Podcast and I will be back in January 2022. So, wesołych świąt i szczęśliwego, radosnego nowego roku. And I leave you with one last piece from Magda Papiesz and Ola Turkiewicz's magical album Święta Kolendą Przyproszona. Powiedzcież nam trzej królowie, prędzej idzie Cię prześladuje, wieść okropna, wieść to. Do...